0: have a seat, and would love to have you turn in your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 11, to the the book of Acts chapter 11, and if you need a Bible, there should be red ones on the row you're in. Uh, If you're in the chairs up here, they're in the seat in front of you, or in the benches on the end of the row, Uh, you'll find those red Bibles, and... Uh, if you need to find Acts chapter 11, just look off the person next to you, and if neither of you know where to find it, look in the front of the Bible at the concordance. It's a good, good place to start. Um, so what we want to do is this morning, want to continue this series on these five missional habits uh, based off of the word bells. Uh, anybody want to tell me what the B stands for? I was going to say, give me a B. That sounded kind of lame. Um, bless, to be a people who bless others. Uh, this is Uh, One of the habits we want to adopt as followers of Jesus as a church is to to make it our habit to bless others with words of affirmation, um, with acts of kindness toward others, and maybe even with gifts, thinking of others and honoring them in that way. Uh, What does the E stand for? Anybody remember? To eat, exactly. So we're not just blessing people, but we're actually looking at the pattern of Jesus that he constantly ate meals with people. Uh, This is a great one, uh, that we want to share our lives around the table, not only with our church family, with people we're in fellowship with, to learn from, grow deeper together, but we also want to share our lives with people who are very different from us, that Jesus set this this radically inclusive table and invited anybody who who, uh, would come to to come and share a meal. And then what was uh, the first L, the one we talked about last week? Listen, yeah, listen to the Spirit, to set aside time each week to just be still and whatever that looks like, uh, of going for a walk, or um, of, of just sort of being a- alone in one place in your house that is, is quiet and still, and listening for the voice of the Spirit, the whispers and nudges of God. And so uh, this morning, we want to add this fourth, um, this fourth habit called learn, to learn Jesus. We'll talk a little more about that in a second. But what I, what I want to say here at the beginning is, I hope you're feeling the rhythm of these things, that... Um, we don't want to just like, okay, you know what, we blessed people that one week a few weeks ago, and then we were like, we're done blessing people, and then we moved on from blessing to eating, and then we ate with people for a week, and then now we're done, and now we listen to the Spirit, we did that, that's good, now we're going to learn. But that they actually, we want to layer these things, because there's something about rhythm that when it gets layered, it actually creates a much more compelling sound, right? Right? Let me see, right? So, in order to illustrate this, because I was not given the gift of rhythm at all, I invited Jarvis, our uh, faithful drummer, to everybody give Jarvis a hand um, to, uh, to help out with this and, and to just kind of give us a feel for, for this rhythm being layered. So, so, we're people who we look to Jesus and we say, Jesus blessed people. So, we want to be a people who bless others, and we start to incorporate this into the rhythm of our lives. It's almost like I should slow jam a little bit now. And then we, we start to eat with others. Again, we learn from Jesus that he ate with others. So this gets added. And it, our lives take on a little more compelling sound. And we, we take this habit of learning, of listening to the Spirit, we take this seriously. So we set time aside to, to listen to the Spirit, and another layer gets added with that. And today we're going to talk about learning Christ. And so again, there's this other layer that gets added into our lives, and the sound just every time gets more and more, and then you add like five more layers all at once, and it's amazing. It's awesome. It's fantastic. Thank you, Jarvis. Thank you very much. So that is just a, a, bit, of a, a bit of an illustration of what, why, why we're doing these things, uh, L- the life of a disciple of Jesus is a, is a beautiful life uh, in every sense of the word. And so we want to we be formed in the way of Jesus. And we want to give our lives to this, to be formed in the way of Jesus. And here's, here's something that I was thinking about. Do I say this this week? Because it, it feels like a, uh, it, it's a, it's a pretty strong way of saying this, but I, but I think it's true. That if we're convinced that we are to live missionally, like to, to live lives of missionaries in our, in our context, where we live, work, and play, and so we're going to bless people, we're going to eat with people. If we're not being formed in the way of Jesus, none of that matters. Like, this is really, in a lot of ways, the center of everything. Uh, to, to be formed in the way of Jesus is the reason the church exists. And so this habit, uh, this week we want to talk about, is to learn Jesus. To set aside time uh, this week to meditate on the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These first-hand experiences of Jesus. To, now, the, the, the phrase, learn Jesus, is kind of an interesting one. It's kind of awkward. What do you mean, learn Jesus? Well, we say it that way instead of learn about Jesus... Because we don't learn about Jesus like we learn about other figures from history. I mean, you can go open up a history book and you can learn all about uh, Alexander the Great or Caesar or whoever you want to. But we learn some things about Jesus through the Gospels, but the whole goal is not to just amass some knowledge about him. It's actually have first-hand experiences with him. Talked about that last week. That Jesus is alive, right? I mean, Jesus was raised from the dead and is interacting with His people and so we want to learn about him but we also want to learn from him and so um we do this by reading the gospels by studying the gospels digging deep into them by committing the words of the gospels of jesus to memory um i am guessing that how many of you could quote dumb and dumber right or the, the princess bride right that's a little better um how many i realize i'm like 35 years old uh I don't even know what new movies are that people are quoting these days. I'm not sure I want to know either. But, um, like, we, our favorite musicians, like, we can quote their lyrics. It just It's a part of us, and so we can just drop it into conversation. But what if we were that in awe of Jesus, that that just talking about him like that became a part of our everyday conversation? To just sort of drop Jesus into conversations in some of the ways that felt most natural, that we want to be disciples who make disciples, and that's going to that's gonna, um, happen by learning Jesus. So as a church, we want to bet the farm on discipleship. Like, I just want to, like, be really super clear about this. Um, we want to be balanced in what we do, but everything we do, we want to lean toward discipleship, to be disciples who make disciples. Um, and here's what C.S. Lewis says. I, I Um, this quote kind of took me off guard this week, but it's really powerful in making this point. This is what he says, in the same way the church exists for nothing else but to draw men, he's reading a part of his time, but to draw people into Christ and to make them little Christ. That's what Christ Ian means, Christian, little Christ, to make them little Christ. If they're not doing that, All the cathedrals, the clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. It is even doubtful you know whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose than to be drawn into Christ. Our, our, Our worship gatherings, if we're not leading people into relationship with Jesus. If our if our ministries, our kids, our students, our programs, whatever it is we're doing as a church, if they're not leading people into a relationship with Christ, then then it actually is kind of worthless. And so as a church, this is we we want to always make this our highest priority to put Jesus, to put Jesus first. So, um, to be disciples who make disciples. I really wish the if gathering would stop stealing our stuff. I mean, right, to be disciples who make disciples, right, talking about, that's probably not what happened. Um, maybe some of you didn't catch that. So let's turn, turn with me to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Here's an example, um, it's kind of a little bit of a case study, about how one early church, an early group of disciples, lived this out in their context. And I think as we look at it from Acts 11, we can maybe make some crossovers to say, what does this mean for us? Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began speaking to Greeks also, uh, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So let's unpack this for a second. Uh, The city of Antioch is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem, so uh, you can figure out if you were going to walk 300 miles, how long that would take you, right? So you have these disciples who, they put their trust in Jesus, and we don't know who they were, right? But what we know is that somewhere along the way, they encountered either Jesus himself during his ministry or the early church. Maybe these people were converted on the day of Pentecost when Peter stands up and preaches to the crowd and several thousand people come to faith. Or, or maybe these were some of the people who, as the church grew, it said the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But either way, these people put their faith in Jesus and all of a sudden um, persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Uh, Stephen is stoned, and it just lights this fire of persecution. And so these disciples who had been living in Jerusalem, they were spread like seeds. Uh, That's where the word diaspora comes from. They were spread like seeds all through Asia Minor. And what happened is these disciples, because their lives had been transformed by Jesus, anywhere they went, they just started to grow. Anywhere they went, they were enthusiastic enough about Jesus that he is the Lord, the King of heaven and earth, that they just started telling people about him, and they started forming these churches. And so one of these churches started to spring up in this city, this urban center called Antioch. And um, it was 300, 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, the interesting thing you can kind of read right past this is it says everywhere else, the church was only growing among one people group, the Jews. Up until this point... Jesus' movement was seen as a Jewish movement inside Judaism, but for the first time, these disciples in this city, they start preaching the good news of Jesus to Greeks, to outsiders, to Gentiles. How many of you know none of us would be here had they not done this, right? Uh, Had the early church not made this, like, this movement to outsiders, we wouldn't be here, because we're all outsiders, unless some of you have gone on Ancestry.com and traced your ancestry back to Abraham, maybe some of you are there, um... But this is, this is this first multicultural church. This is the expression of the kingdom of God coming in the city of Antioch. Now let's take a look at verse 22. Now news of this, this was controversial stuff, big deal. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. And he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And catch this, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Something happens in Antioch about the way this little Jesus group of people are living out their lives. That somebody from the outside looks at them and say, you guys are like Christ. You're like little Christ. This wasn't a name the church gave themselves. It wasn't like, hey, look at us. We're like Jesus. It was a name that outsiders gave to them because they were so infatuated with the person of Jesus. Now, I want to unpack the city of Antioch a little bit because we hear these names like Cyprus, Cyrene, Antioch. Like, it doesn't mean anything unless we have some context. So let me tell you a little bit about the city of Antioch. The early church was an urban movement. Christianity was an urban movement, spreading from city to city primarily. So very different from life in central Kansas, right? So Antioch was a city, it was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. Uh, it wasn't a huge, like, a huge city as far as land was concerned. In fact, it was about two square miles. The walls of Antioch encompassed about two square square miles in Kansas we think sections right so two sections of ground that's you know what is that 1240 acres that's how big Antioch was Um, just to give you some context uh, South Hutchinson the city boundaries of South Hutchinson is about 2.7 acres 2.7 square miles I think Um, so you know a a seventh bigger than than Antioch and then um, Sterling just again some context is 1.7 square miles so somewhere between the size of Sterling and South Hutchinson, there's Antioch. Now, there's one big difference. It's how many people live there. Uh, South Hutch has a population of, well, like, 2,500, 2,600. Antioch had a population of 150,000. 150,000 people living in two square miles. Um, it's unbelievable. Think about how, how many square miles of ground do you live on or, you know, and think about 117 people per acre. 117 people per acre. Uh, our house is on a third of an acre. And if we were living in Antioch with a third of an acre, our family of five would have 33 other people living with us in our house. So you can do the math. Like here in South like this property is about 3.4 acres we're on. You'd have about 400 people living on this property if we were the same as Antioch. Um, 117 people per acre. Uh, Compare that to New York City. New York City's population density is about 42 people per acre. Uh, The highest populated area is Manhattan, right? So this is not Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, Manhattan, New York City has a population density of 108 people per acre. So Antioch was more densely populated than Manhattan, Now, what do you think was the difference between modern-day Manhattan and ancient Antioch? High-rises, right? So you have all of these high-rises in in Manhattan that you don't have in Antioch. In fact, there were actually laws against building buildings that were too tall. The tallest building you could have in, in a city like Antioch was five stories, 65 feet tall, because they were so prone to collapse. Some reports say that people actually lived in fear, they lived in these apartment complexes and they lived in fear of them crumbling on their heads constantly, because it happened all the time. Think about that, 117 people per acre. Now, think about, so again, you got Manhattan in mind, now think about sharing the streets with animals, with livestock, and start to imagine what Antioch smelled like. I mean, real seriously. Um, it was not a pleasant place. Uh, fires broke out um, periodically. In fact, um, over the course of a couple hundred years, the city burnt to the ground. It was about 600 years, the city burnt to the ground four different times. Whew. So you're cooking in your little, uh, little tiny little apartment. You've got a little wood stove to cook your food or to boil your water, which was contaminated. And all of a sudden, a fire breaks out, and it just sweeps through your apartment complex to the one right next to it. And, you know, like just disaster. This is Antioch. Um, no running water, no soap. So uh, I'm not feeling super good today, so I haven't been, don't mean to be standoffish, but I'm not shaking people's hands. So like Eric shows up to a place and there's no soap, there's no hand sanitizer, you know, to wash your hands. Like germs is get spread from person to person. Um, sewers were these open ditches on the sides of the road. And so there was no indoor plumbing, so you had buckets. I'm sorry to be too graphic, but this was the reality. Um, you had these buckets, and you would dump them in the ditches unless you could And There were actually reports of people who couldn't get out of their, like, narrow stair- stairwells in their apartment complexes. So what you would do in that case is just chuck the bucket out the window and yell. I don't know what you yell when you dump a bucket out the window, right? Um, and, and that was Antioch. Disease spread rapidly, the life expectancy, here's, here's the deal, last thing I want to say, the life expectancy in a city like Antioch was 30 years. 30 years. You all are in your midlife crisis right now. <laughs> like at, at 30 years old. Any portrait, this is from um, a sociologist named Rodney Stark, any portrait of Antioch in the New Testament times must depict a city filled with misery, danger, fear, despair, and hatred. A city where the average family lived a a squalid life in filthy and cramped quarters, where at least half of the children died at birth or during infancy, and where most of the children who, who lived lost at least one parent before reaching maturity. This is Antioch. Extraordinary levels of pain and misery and disorder. And this is the place where Christianity thrived. This is a context where the gospel of Jesus gets planted by these few passionate disciples and the first multicultural church springs to life and it spreads this good news all over the world. If, if these are the conditions where faith in Jesus thrive, then Jesus and his movement called the church can thrive anywhere. Can somebody say amen to that? If, if, if the gospel can thrive in a place like this, the gospel can thrive in central Kansas. Do you agree? Please, do you agree? Like, ser- I'm serious. Like, if you don't, we can talk later. Um, this message of Jesus, of, of, of peace that he brings into our lives, message of hope that life can be different and that uh, hope that extends beyond this life to eternal life, a, a message of Jesus that when it takes root in people's lives, it turns them into compassionate people. Um, that while others are, you know, an, an epidemic hits a city and everybody else is running for the hills, the Christians stayed and took care of the sick. Why? It's because of Jesus. Because they were convinced. There was something so convincing about the example of Jesus that it changed their lives, and the church grew like crazy. This is the place where they were first called Christians, Little Christ, because they were so enamored with the way of Jesus. So what would happen is I like, as I kind of, you dig into stories like this, the passages like this, and it makes me wonder about like just our context here. What would it look like for us if we were so passionate about Jesus that we just dropped Jesus into conversations? Like not even intentionally, we just couldn't help it because we were so passionate about who he is and what he's doing in our lives and in the world. Um, And and when I say, here's what I I fear, is when I say, what if we talked about Jesus? What we hear is, what if you confronted people about their sins and said, you know that Jesus died for your sins, so you need to repent and believe in him? That that's what we hear when we say, talk about Jesus. That's the only conversation we know how to have about Jesus, is an awkward confrontation that says, hey, Jesus died for your sins, so you need to to turn around and, and repent and believe in him. And what happens sometimes is we hear talk about Jesus and we just like say, okay, I need to do that. So we interject that conversation about Jesus out of the blue. We've never talked to this person about Jesus, who he was or his life or his teachings or anything. And so it feels really awkward for them and it feels really awkward for us and everybody leaves with a bad taste in their mouth. But what would happen if we're talking to people and we just say, you know what? Like you're having a conversation you say, that reminds me of a story Jesus told. That, that reminds me of something Jesus said. And, and it just became the most natural thing in the world to just talk about Jesus because our lives are oriented around him. And here's, here's uh, something I think is really important for us to consider. Because like, we worry sometimes, well, what if people are offended that we talk about Jesus? Just try it. Try it. Do you know that across the board people are compelled by Jesus? From... Um, from, from people, people aren't all that thrilled about the church, and they're not all thrilled about religion, but when you talk to Jesus, about Jesus with people, people are compelled by him. Even atheists, if you have atheist friends, and I, I almost guarantee, you start talking about Jesus, they're really intrigued by Jesus. He was an awesome guy, amazing teacher. What if the church looked more like that? Right? Make Christians Christ-like again. Um, get some red hats and wear them around. Never mind. So, so, to for us as a church what would that look like this is the reason we learn christ is because we want to be formed by him to have a jesus shaped life now it's clear the early church they didn't just look at jesus as someone to believe in they looked at jesus as someone to follow of course they believed in him of course they put their faith in him but they also wanted to follow him and to look at his example and and stuff like this is all over the New Testament. Take a look at uh, Ephesians five. We'll, these words will be on the screen. You can look them up later. Ephesians five one and two. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Some older translations say this: Be imitators of God, follow God's example. Like, do you, do you hear that replicate Jesus language coming out in that? This is Paul writing to the church and saying, just whatever you do, look to Jesus and follow his example and walk in his way of love, just like he gave himself up for you. Uh, here's another one. Uh, this, is, this one's from Peter, from 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, starting verse 21. It says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Again, do you hear that? Imitation language? Christ gave an example. And not just so that you could believe in him to take away your sins, but so that you could follow in his steps to be a disciple who makes disciples, that our lives become more and more Jesus-shaped. This is why our vision as a church is to to replicate Jesus, to be disciples who make disciples. And so one of the things I want to challenge us to is to go beyond Jesus' greatest hits. Um, like, we, we know Jesus' greatest hits, just like, uh, you could probably name a dozen bands, and you could sing most of their greatest hits, but how many bands could you sing every song they ever sang, and you know every lyric of every song? Like, how, how many of those bands do you know? Maybe one, like, maybe, but Jesus, like, most of the time, like, we, we know his greatest hits, and those are the stories. We know the birth. His birth stories, he was amazing. Uh, we know his death and resurrection stories. And then in the middle, like, we may know some stuff from the Sermon on the Mount, maybe a passage or two. We know a couple of miracle stories and a couple of parables. And that's really the extent of our, our knowledge of Jesus and his life and teachings. And so what if, like, what if our goal was to say, like, I have some friends, and I'm, I'm guessing you do too, who, well, w- one of my friends, he, he can quote Star Trek at any moment, at the drop of a hat, any conversation, he can say, oh, that reminds me of a Star Trek episode. What in the world is that? Like, Star Trek, I don't live in that world. Maybe some of you are Trekkies. Um, but we'll uh, have a conversation in Klingon later. So you can quote Star Trek. I have another uh, pastor who I look up to who he can quote Bob Dylan lyrics, and I wouldn't be surprised if he knows every song Bob Dylan ever sang, like, I mean, which is unbelievable, Right? But he can just, like, you're having a conversation, he's just like, oh, that reminds me of a Bob, a Bob Dylan song. Da, da, da. And what if, what if talking about Jesus was just like that? That's not offensive. It's not in your face. It's not confrontational. It's just the most natural thing in the world for people who, who are in love with Jesus. So to set time aside to get to know Jesus. So here's, what I, here's how I want to end. I want to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 8, uh, 1 to 4. And I just want to model this for like two minutes of what this might look like when you do this this week. Because for some of us, it'll be brand new. Um, so here, here's one passage, Matthew chapter 8. And as you get to know, uh, you, you start to read the gospel of Matthew. By the way, it takes a couple hours. I mean, if you read a novel or you watch a football game, you can read a whole gospel in the same amount of time. And you just get the whole story But what you find is that Matthew um, records Jesus coming off the Sermon on the Mount. He's just given the greatest sermon the world has ever told. And he kind of comes down off the mountain, and he meets this man. It says, When Jesus came down off the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately, he was cleansed. And his and, uh, of his leprosy. Then Jesus said, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Uh, go, go back one slide there, Carl, if you would. So you, you start reading this passage and you just prayerfully say, God, what do you want to teach me through this? Would you, would you just help me experience it firsthand? And maybe you start to ask questions about like, okay, this, this word leprosy. And maybe you do a quick Google search that says like, leprosy in the New Testament. Or maybe you have a study Bible, and there's a footnote at the bottom that says, ah, oh, by the way, leprosy w- was not just what we call Hansen's disease today, but it was this wide range of skin diseases, from rashes, poison ivy, to what we know as leprosy. And so uh, you, you, you realize, like, okay, like, this is, this is what this was. But then you start asking questions about, like, but why does he say unclean? If you're willing, you can make me clean. And you do a little research on that, and you realize, like, ah, oh, people who had these skin diseases, they were worried about it spreading because of their close quarters, and they were separated. If you had leprosy, you were separated from your family. You were separated from your community, from your social interactions. You were cut off. So now you start to imagine like this guy who has been tossed aside a bit like a piece of garbage, and he's on the side of the road, and he sees Jesus, and he calls out to Jesus, says, Lord, if you're willing to you can make me clean. And you can start to put yourself in his place. And maybe you start to realize, there are places in my life where I feel like I need to call out to Jesus. And there are places in my life where I feel cut off, where I feel separated. And you just start to own that stuff and you start to bring it to Jesus and you see Jesus' character. You might learn something about prayer, that, that this man doesn't manipulate Jesus. He doesn't say, um, Jesus, you need to heal me. He says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You have the power to do it but I don't presume to know what you're going to do, so I'm just going to submit. Maybe you have a need that you're just saying, Lord, if you're willing, you have the power to do this, and you just simply submit it to God. And then you look at Jesus, and you realize that Jesus said, I am willing, and he reached out his hand and touched him. And and you realize, like, Jesus just made himself unclean by touching this man. And he didn't have to touch him. In fact, you read the very next story, and Jesus heals the Roman centurion's uh, servant from a distance. He didn't have to touch him, but he made a point to touch him to say you are restored be clean and you realize that with jesus the 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 the, his holiness isn't threatened by somebody else's uncleanness but his holiness actually flows into their lives and so you start to ask questions about what does that mean for the church what does this mean for the church are there people in our own communities who feel cut off are there people who are calling out because they're isolated and in pain People who are unclean, in a sense. And how are we, as people who follow Jesus, do we see them? Are there places in town that we don't drive because we, we, we just don't have to drive down those roads? Are there um, voices we don't have to hear? And how do we move toward them? And how, what does it look like for us to extend a hand and to give the grace and the compassion and the love of Jesus? If we learn Jesus, it is infinitely deep. And we will never get to the bottom of it. We can go deeper and deeper and deeper into the, the life of Jesus. I hope you are absolutely impassioned with this quest to learn to love this man and our Lord Jesus Christ. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you, Jesus, that you ha- have walked among us, that you modeled for us human life, That you were as fully human as any one of us. And yet you are God in flesh, the clearest picture of God that this world has ever seen. And so God, um, we want to be people who are formed in the way of Jesus. As a church, God, may we be those people who in our conversations with others, the way we treat others, the way we bless and eat, and and live for others, God, that they would actually see us and see Jesus in us. God, we don't want people to be attracted to the church. We don't want people to be attracted to us. We want people to be drawn to you, Lord. So if you can use us to do that, God, we are all yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.